Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Celeste Malone on the podcast. Welcome, Celeste. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so excited about this conversation. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Clayhos, Homoko, Comox, and, and Klaaman First Nations, who were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them into reserves. Um, and uh, just uh, grateful to be on these these unceded territories and, uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward to this conversation. So uh, before we uh, kind of get into some of the nitty gritty, I always like to, uh, you know, uh, do a little bit of an origin story with my guests, kind of talk about how they got into the field. This is more exciting for me. You're the second school psychologist I've had on, on the show, but the first one that I had was also a behavior analyst. So the stories were still quite similar. So I'm excited <laughs> to kind of hear what the origin story of a school, school psychologist could sound like. Um, and, and and I feel like with with uh, with your background and the kind of work you do, your story may not be the same as a lot of others either. So <laughs> interested in how you got in the field and then kind of what led to, you know, such a strong focus in kind of uh, social justice, the social justice area. Sure. And again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to speak to an audience of behavior analysts, considering how much overlap there is between the two professions. Yeah. Fun fact, the graduate program I went to at Temple University in school psychology, many in my cohort ended up doing a dual BCBA track as well. I was an mm. outlier in oh, not wow. doing so. So okay. I do have, uh, while I'm not a behavior analyst, certainly have some exposure to it. I think possibly a little bit more in my training yeah. than other school psychologists considering the focus of my program. So I just <laughs> wanted to acknowledge that part. Right on. Um, but in terms of my origin story and how I discovered school psychology, I always had an interest in working with children. However, I thought that I would be doing it as a medical doctor throughout <laughs> most of high school. And then when I started in college, was looking to be pre-med, <laughs> originally was a biology major, and then I changed to human biology. And as part of human biology, you have to take electives in the social sciences, such as in mm. psychology and anthropology. I took an abnormal psychology class, loved it, mm. and then started looking at other psychology electives for my human biology major. And then mm. at the end of my sophomore year, when it was time to declare a concentration, I thought that biology, sorry, that psychology rather would be the better fit. Mm. At that time, I was still pre-med though. So mm. one summer I stayed on campus. I went to undergrad at, at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I stayed on campus and one of my friends from school who lived in Rhode Island knew of a summer program. She had previously taught at the summer program. It's called Summer Bridge. It's a nationwide program in the United States. And they needed an additional teacher. And she knew I was staying up there in the summer to take classes and that I had done youth tutoring and worked with kids before, asked if I was interested in doing that. So I did. I was teaching math to sixth graders during that summer, and I loved it. I really fell in love with teaching and working with kids in that way. And when I returned to school, started looking at a, a number of education courses also, and then just got to Googling and searching and researching about what I could do with a degree in both psychology and in education. And I had a 
brief introduction to school psychology. I would say my bigger introduction was when I was still an undergrad, but I had taken some time off and I was working at a special education school that primarily served kids with autism as well as other developmental disabilities. And they had a school psychologist on staff. So while I had an awareness that school psychology was a subdiscipline. It was really working in that setting, seeing a school psychologist in action and getting a better sense of where that fits in within the broader educational context that I became more interested in school psychology. I did a brief detour and got my master's degree in school counseling. And this is when I was in the Washington, D.C. area teaching. I taught at a private school in the D.C. area for two years and then went on to admissions at another private school in D.C. And during that time, I was working on my master's in counseling. It There are far more counseling programs than there are school psychology programs. And I thought that there was more overlap in the two areas than there actually were. And I enjoyed doing my school counseling coursework, but it wasn't quite the right fit. And in working in admissions at a private school, for the younger grades, and this was grades four, five, and six, student applicants, rather, would often have to take an intelligence test, the Wexler scales, the WISP. And we would regularly be reviewing these reports. And I knew enough about intelligence tests and what the conversations and the zeitgeist about issues of bias and I would see these patterns and scores. Notably, there was a score difference between white, it was an all-girls school, between white applicants and applicants of color, most notably on the verbal comprehension index, which we know is most associated with cultural load and more so exposure to culture as opposed to intelligence. So I would notice these big gaps there, as well as applicants who were coming from another private school versus those that were coming from a public school. And so I was seeing these score differences based on race, as well as based on socioeconomic status. And I taught and I had an assessment course in my counseling program and spoke to one of my professors about it, who gave me a book about the WISC and started learning more. And as I progressed in my program, I realized that school psychology really was where I wanted to be. And I finished up my counseling program and then went immediately into my school psychology doctoral program. And now here I am. This year will be it's 2023 in August. It will be 11 years since I got my doctorate in school psychology. I I, I, uh, I alluded to this a bit, a, a bit in the question, or you alluded to this a bit, sorry, uh, with uh, talking about the WISC. Um, so was the WISC sort of your first, this, your experience with the WISC, kind of your first foray, foray into kind of the, the whole area of bias and, and whatnot? Is that why you kind of started moving towards social justice? I just see a lot of your work is in that area. Sure. So uh, it, I can't even say a starting point for my social justice work. Mm -hmm. I really think it's been something present since as long as I can remember. Mm. And so just to backtrack a little bit, I'm born and raised in New York City. And specifically, I grew up in Harlem. For mm. your listeners, depending on where they're from, they may have different conceptions. <laughs> things, Different things may come up when they think about Harlem, especially Absolutely. in the 80s and 90s. Yep. I like to mention the Harlem Renaissance and thinking about Harlem as a bed of mm. culture and innovation. But I also mm. know that like, similar to a lot of urban areas, 
it had those same issues with race and class and the divestment in communities of color, mm. that there just wasn't a lot of investment in my neighborhood um, during the 80s and 90s, which people often talk about the crack ep epidemic and the crack era. Mm. In the war on drugs, my neighborhood was definitely impacted, but I also recognize that it, it wasn't something a, about us being Black. I knew that there was that we weren't being invested in because we were were black, but I knew that it wasn't something inherently flawed with us. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I went to school in my neighborhood for kindergarten through eighth grade. My family is from the British Virgin Islands. So I grew up hearing my Caribbean history, but mm. then also going into school in my neighborhood where I had predominantly black teachers, I was well aware of the history of my neighborhood, the significance mm. of Harlem Hospital, Abyssinian Baptist Church, the Schomburg Center for, for Culture. Mm. I lived on, on the corner of Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard that I was mm. regularly exposed to Black culture, Black history. And so while I knew that there were many negatives about it, history of enslavement, um, thinking about the civil rights era and all of these pieces, I also heard very much a counter narrative that I knew that the history of Black people in the United States did not start with slavery. Mm. And that during our Black History Month celebrations, it was taking an approach across the diaspora where we're learning about countries in Africa, as well as in the Afro-Caribbean. And mm. so that's how I knew that it wasn't something inherently wrong with Black people, because yeah. I was deeply exposed to Black excellence. Mm. And then growing up in New York City and taking public transportation, because pretty much everyone in New York City does, mm. and there's no still place really to have cars. But when you take the bus, you see the changes. You see how the neighborhood changes as you leave Harlem and you're going downtown mm. really as soon as you hit Central Park North. Yes. And think of Fifth Avenue, Park Avenue, all of those things associated with it. That Fifth Avenue goes all the way up in Harlem as this Park Avenue. But mm. once you, you could see the change in the streets and in the buildings themselves and litter and graffiti, all of that change as the neighborhoods became more white as you were going mm. downtown. And the composition of people on the bus changed. There was more white people there. Because again, everyone in New York pretty much takes public transportation. And mm -hmm. so I could see, I saw firsthand about how the physical environment, the type of resources that neighborhoods had how it changes depends on who depending on who is in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so it was so when you say when did or how did I get interested in social justice? Yes. It's always it was always there. It was yeah. always there. Yeah. You know, the there's a lot of things you said there, which I'm not going to unpack today, but I'm going to Google. Because um, <laughs> uh, because I mean, for me, being sort of, a you know, kind of rural Canadian for Harlem is just the Globetrotters. Right. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, um, maybe, you know, maybe a little a little, you know cartoons from the 80s or whatever but you know there was certainly you know tidbits here and there but you've said even just this Harlem Renaissance sounds like an awesome thing to read about oh yes and 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 sort of all the all the areas are going so I'm looking forward to kind of kind of digging into that but something that really stuck out for me was um I've heard I've heard these sort of it's not even a metaphor I've heard the 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 train story before mm -hmm. um and I've experienced it myself in in Vancouver, because I, I lived kind of just outside of Vancouver, um, and uh, we've got a 
what's called the SkyTrain system. It's essentially a subway that's above ground, light rail kind of thing. And um, the train goes from um, uh, deep in the heart of North Surrey um, um, all the way to, um, uh, you know, downtown Vancouver. And uh, I used to ride that. I used to live in kind of South Surrey and I used to ride that train pretty regularly. And Surrey's always had a kind of a Kind of a similar name, uh, you know, for itself, uh, you know, uh, I think probably much like, you know, some of the areas you're talking about. And yeah, just watching sort of the class change and mm-hmm. and and the people change, you know, from sort of, you know, and, and never, never did I have a problem, never was there fighting or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, people attacking me or awful things happening. But, you know, you could definitely, I was definitely judging people from from there all the way to there. You know, and like, you know, I, I wish I didn't live on this part of the train. I wish I lived further west where, mm-hmm. you know, the people were less scary, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. and, and 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 strange. You know, and this is all, all, all of kind of my own biases kind of coming into play. But it, it's it's amazing. You know, I, I think if, if folks are able to be present on the train um, yes. <laughs> uh, to sort of ex- you, you really get to experience all of society on uh, if you take a long train ride from one end to the other end. Yeah. Very much so. And even just thinking, um, because you mentioned the perceptions of scary people, that was something I saw regularly as well. So on the subway, there was one of the subway, there are multiple subway lines that may go on the same track. And one of them goes up to where I live and ends in that neighborhood in that part of Harlem. And then there's Mm. another one that goes further up near Columbia University Ivy League University, which mm. is actually technically in Harlem, but mm. they renamed the neighborhood. They call it mm. Morningside Heights so that people wouldn't be scared to send their kids to school wow. in Harlem. But it's interesting when you see some people get off at the wrong stop or miss their stop. And, oh, I'm on this train that is going to Harlem as opposed to going up towards Morningside Heights and people looking scared and Mm. and panicked and no one's doing anything to them. No one's really paying them any mind, but the biases they hold about who is considered to be dangerous. And I am on a subway car with, at this point, it's mostly black people on there because most of the white folks would get off at Central Park North and not go further in Harlem. And again, no one's bothering them, but Mm. just that perception of it. And so As a kid, I see this. I see how the train clears out when Mm. we're at 110th Street and Central Park North. Um, And then when there there was a white person who missed their stop and how they're looking panicked. Like these are all things that I'm taking in. And so kids are noticing and observing the world around them all the time Mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of what it is that they are seeing. And so our job as adults in their lives is to provide them with the knowledge and skills to understand the the things that they are seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I recall conversations with my parents about discrimination. Um, my I mentioned before that my parents are immigrants. Both right. of them are from the British Virgin Islands. They were the only ones of their siblings to immigrate to the U.S. Most of my extended family is back there. Mm. And my father, who worked in construction, he would tell us... Um, that some that people will attempt that white people will attempt to divide us, and in the sense of Caribbean black people versus American U.S. born mm. black people, and how they would tell him that, oh well, you're the 
you're one of the good ones and don't get messed mixed up with this other crowd. And mm. so the attempts to divide. And I remember my father telling um, me and my sister about that as a way to prepare us for those things that are going to happen, that mm. we are black, that we may not, our families aren't originally from the U.S., but we are black. And mm. as Black people, white folks are not going to be looking or doing a genealogy chart. They're just going to be looking at you and yeah. responding. Yeah. And so the importance of of thinking about the ties that bind and mm -hmm. recognizing them when there are attempts to divide. But again, it's making sense of the world that this is a life lesson. I remember my father telling me about this. And then when I saw this happening later in my life, mm -hmm. I understood what, what it was. And so when we think about, I think all too often, especially in this current sociopolitical environment, there's just this lack of awareness, understanding, or acknowledgement that kids are noticing what is happening yes. and, and talking under this assumption that we that youth are being indoctrinated. No, 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 no. They are seeing the world around them mm -hmm. and how between climate change um, in the U.S., gun violence in particular, right. ra uh, racial strife, book bans everything like that. They see these things that are happening. The world is in a dumpster fire, but this is their future. And yeah. so they're taking greater ownership to create the world that they want to live in. And yeah. that's not adults indoctrinating them, but it's really individuals taking ownership and self-determination that youth are not a blank slate by any means. And mm. so Again, our job as adults is one, to be good stewards of the world that they're going to mm -hmm. inherit, but then also to prepare them with the knowledge to help them understand and make sense of the world so that they can be good global citizens. And what I mean by that is the awareness of how they treat other people who are different from them, mm -hmm. how they treat the land that they are on, <laughs> everything about that, just mm -hmm. truly being a citizen and caretaker of the world. Yeah, you you, you expanded into an area that I was just about to ask about, because I was slowly thinking about sort of, you know, and again, we're, we're kind of so distant from some of this stuff here in Canada. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, we know, we know a lot of the same things are happening, but you know, I, it, it, it because I think in sort of, in terms of kind of the black population, it's set, they tend, it tends to be mostly kind of in Ontario, uh, in Toronto, that's the, our big city, and and uh, that's kind of where a lot of this is happening. And for us over on the west coast, sort of living the, you know, the, the hippie yoga, <laughs> you know, island lifestyle, where we're so we're so distant from it. But um, I, just noticing, you know, and obviously hearing in the news about a lot of the things happening, you know, particularly in Florida, you know, around laws and whatnot, and banning, you know, banning, and Texas as well, kind of, you know, the, with the book banning and and the burning and the and the you know and the and, you know and the, the critical race stuff and all the things that basically they don't want want folks to talk about in school, thinking that somehow folks won't catch this stuff other places. And I, I don't think I don't think any governor is thinking about these kids riding on a train, you know, and exactly. and, and, and getting all this education anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and getting all this exposure anyway. And so, it, you know, it, I don't know what how how they think this is going to be effective, um, uh, you know, in, in well, some of these other settings. Well, I mean, for some, it, it definitely is, because as you know, I mentioned before, growing up in Harlem, 
Black History Month was a huge thing in my school. And mm. when I was in kindergarten through eighth grade, I went to a school that was like 10 blocks away from my house, right mm. in my neighborhood. And Black History Month was the biggest thing ever. And we learned mm. about Black history year round. Mm. But this was just a culmination celebratory event and not just focusing on Black people in the U.S. Because all too often, people think the story of Black folks starts with their enslavement in the U.S. and ignoring the fact that there's a whole continent, a whole history that they had prior to that. And that's what I was exposed to. And so when I went to high school, which was outside of my neighborhood, it was on the Upper East Side, predominantly white school. They, if I remember my freshman year and February came and like, hey, doing anything for Black History Month? And no, they don't mm. at all. Uh, another student and I, we started it. But I remember getting into an argument with a teacher who was saying that Egypt isn't in Africa. And so, mm. and other folks who didn't know better would just accept that as is. Mm. I knew better. <laughs> I knew of a broader history than what I was being told and would challenge the teachers on that Mm. and sometimes get in trouble for it. But if the only learning that you're doing is. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is privilege. Hey listeners, I apologize in advance for the poor sound quality over the next minute or two. Uh, I tried to filter these sounds out but was unsuccessful, so please bear with me. It doesn't last very long. Enjoy. In that classroom and thinking about the stories that are attempted to be silenced because um, the big story now is around AP African American Studies and how the college board essentially gutted it uh, because of Florida's rejection of it. They presented this watered-down, deleted version uh, after Florida rejected it. But what does that mean? What does it mean that we're not talking about the history and contributions of African Americans in the United States? What does it mean when we can't acknowledge? different um, gender identities and sexual orientations and saying that these are taboo topics. Mm. Who are the people that we're not going to talk about? um, What message does that send to students who may not be of those groups? Oh, there must be something bad about these groups. That's why the government is stopping us um, from hearing about us. And then for those who are of those groups, it's they internalize this as well. And so all of that to say is for some, there's there's a resistance, and there's always been a resistance. Wherever mm. there's been oppression, there has been resistance, and there are people sharing knowledge, using social media in particular. Um, I think it was a, it's the Brooklyn Public Library that any student who's in a state that has these book bans could get these banned books um, mm. electronically from the Brooklyn Public Library. There are networks of resistance, but at the same time, there are going to be many people who are accepting this and trusting this, like, oh, I guess this is the best thing to happen or not questioning these decisions at all. And then they are going to be told an incomplete story about Mm. groups. And Mm. that's where they're going to know and learn. And that's going to shape how they move forward in the future. And Mm. so, yeah, we absolutely need to continue this resistance because it's problematic that if Mm. we 
if we take away the tools to be able to talk about diversity or know that diversity exists, yes. that there is more than one way of doing something, that we are of different cultures and identities, how you may approach something is different from mm-hmm. mine, but that doesn't mean that it's inherently wrong. And when we don't talk about difference, that's what kids learn. The difference is bad. And so everything, everyone must be the same. And and what does the same look like? Not adjusting to other people, but them adjusting to white norms and values because mm. that's what's being taught as the thing that's normative. Wow, yeah. Right on. Um, just a couple more questions about your origin that, 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 that uh-huh. just stood out for me and then we'll kind of dive into kind of what you're doing now. Um, one thing you said about the, the whisk there, uh, sort of the, the, this verbal piece is connected to cultural load. What, what do you mean by that? Yes. So what I mean by cultural load, um, well, the assumption is, is that these tests assess intelligence and that their that intelligence is this innate characteristic. Um, we can cultivate knowledge, we can learn knowledge, but the idea of intelligence suggests that there's a we have an innate capacity for for learning and growth. It speaks right. to our potential. Mm. And so that's but that's not necessarily true for the tests and measures that we use, that mm. they may be measuring other things than intelligence. And so for the verbal comprehension index on the on the WISC, what I mean by referring to cultural load, it's more of an assessment of the extent to which someone has adopted or has been exposed to white middle-class U.S. culture. Mm. And so thinking about the types of items that are on there and what's included within this index, things such as similarities, where you're asking kids, giving them two words, in what way are they alike? But in order to address that, it's not a core intelligence piece um, because assume to measure intelligence, like can you draw these parallels and compare and contrast, but you have to know what the thing is in the first place. And so if you are outside of the normative sample where you just just don't know what this Mm -hmm. is, like you have no frame of reference for it, then you won't be able to address that question. It's no mark on your intelligence, but it's measuring the extent to which you've been exposed to different concepts and words or or objects. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. And so that's what I mean by cultural load. And so <laughs> when we look at different measures of intelligence, the Wexler scales being one of them, um, there are some tasks that are more sensitive to that. And so the verbal comprehensive, comprehensive index, which is assumed to assess crystal, crystallized knowledge, there is a measure of achievement that's embedded in there. Mm. It's not purely intelligence. Whereas um, tasks such as matrix reasoning, which are nonverbal in nature, it's looking at patterns and figuring out what's the rule to identify what's the missing piece in the matrix. Mm. Those are taught to be or thought to be better measures of intelligence because it's looking at problem solving. And while Again, there's nothing. There's no such thing as a culture-free test. <laughs> Everything yeah. is culture around yeah. it. You know, even thinking about how you may interpret colors and a meaning. So you may be bringing that with you when you're looking at these different objects and trying to figure out what the rule is. So culture is always present, mm. but it's less reliant on that verbal learning and cultural exposure to do mm-hmm. well on it. Mm-hmm. That it focuses more on that problem solving and less around um, acculturation. So, I mean, so essentially, I mean, 
you know, a, a, a black student or a student sort of of any group that hasn't grown up in, you know, a predominantly, you know, middle class white community is going to come off as being less intelligent. Yes. If, if you use this measure, um, even though it's got nothing to do with their intelligence, it's just got to do with the fact that they didn't have G.I. Joe lunchboxes. And the question was about G.I. Joe lunchboxes. <laughs> Correct. Correct. That it's very much looks at this cultural exposure. And mm. if you haven't been exposed to these words or concepts, it doesn't mean that you're not good at problem solving, but you can't solve the problem if you don't know all of the pieces in it. And so it's just it there needs to be this acknowledgement of that this is not a met that this looks more at achievement mm-hmm. and and interpreting the scores in that type of light, because it is mm. what it is, that there is a value in knowing what stu- what kids know. The yeah. concepts that they've been exposed to, that has value. But at the same time, we can't say that this is intelligence because we know it's not. Yeah. Now, that was early on in, in sort of you kind of getting into this field. This is over 10 years ago. Has anything changed with that? Um, eh, not, too, not too much. <laughs> I think that there's greater awareness of this as an issue. And, mm. you know, the focus has been a lot on looking at scores and is there bias inherent in the test, but looking at it in a more nuanced way and looking at these patterns of scores, understanding that when we look at these normative samples and we need to tease apart these groups even more. Mm -hmm. So if we say that we have 10% Asian um, Asian youth in our sample. That's a huge category. And so mm-hmm. even recognizing that we need to be looking at these things in a deeper, detailed and more nuanced way, that we assume far more similarities within ethnic groups mm-hmm. than there actually are. Because I got to think so that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, and we were talking before, and I've talked to a couple of folks about this sort of the, the AP thing and how, you know, essentially, it's just it's it's not that these kids wouldn't do well in these classes. It's just they're not getting, you know, recommended or suggested to take them in Correct. the first place. And part of that could be from this test that they had, you know, when yes. they were in kindergarten, you know, and now they're in high school. Well, no, uh, the whisk says they're a little down low on the scale. So I don't know mm-hmm. if we want to put them in. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so another another question I just had about what you said you were talking about taking the, the a counseling program. And this is something mm-hmm. um, you know I've been talking a lot about uh, with behavior analysts. Uh, you know, is that you know behavior analysts, generally speaking, you know, uh, you know, we don't get training in counseling. We don't get training in, in in you know in how to build a therapeutic alliance and how to build therapeutic rapport at all in our in our program. Um, and. Uh, uh, you know, and I'm seeing more and more of my colleagues going back to school, taking counseling degrees and whatnot and becoming, you know, you know, much better professionals. And I mean, we've we I mean, we've we've had a lot of talks about sort of compassion in ABA and mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, it was in 2020 that someone published an article first, like the first article on compassion in ABA in 2020. You know, there's a wow. 60, 60 years into the field and people are just starting to realize that maybe we need to be nice to people um, um, and, and, and research that a bit. Um I'm curious. I'm curious more, more kind of it's a more broad question, just sort of my lack mm-hmm. of knowledge about school psych and school counseling. I would have thought those were the same thing. So <laughs> what what's kind of the big difference between a school counseling degree and a school psych degree? Maybe that's a bit too big of a question, but sure. That and that is a big <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. Or what's the uh, difference between a counselor and a school psych, you know, kind of generally? You know? Yeah, and I think, um, and I'll even take it a step 
back a little bit more sure. between counseling and, and psychology. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so counseling, thinking about some of its roots, where it looks at human behavior, but from this very relational aspect, um, where we're looking at positive regard, you know, unconditional positive regard and looking right. at someone's readiness to to change and yeah. guiding through guiding them through that reflectiveness. So it really does focus on these internal mechanisms and engaging in self-reflection um, for the process of behavioral change. Psychology also focuses on behavior change, um, but I think there's, it's more scientific and that's mm. that's how they would distinguish themselves as, as disciplines that mm. psychology focuses more on the science of behavior and thinking about some of the methods that were used to assess that and mm. so that focus on assessment in assessment of personality intelligence behavior mm. that's a huge hallmark of psychology thinking about its scientific roots and origins mm. to really be able to study human behavior and on the, some search for what feels like, sub, I guess, in its origins, more like the subjective truth to understanding mm, mm. concepts of behavior. But the use of the scientific method, um, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics. Mm. Right on. No, that makes sense. And uh, that, 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 I mean, that sort of falls well with kind of behavior analysis because we're very... We're very sciencey too, and it, well, um, you're offshoot of psychology. I mean, depending on who you ask, it's and yeah. it's the same thing to be said of school psychology. That yeah. is, school psychology a discipline itself, or is it a subdiscipline mm. of psychology? Same thing for behavior analysis. I mm. believe you are Division Twenty Five of APA. That's right. Like you're yeah. you're an APA division, and so yeah. is it own distinct field or a subset of a specialty area in psychology? Yeah, and but not of course not everybody agrees with that. I know in our province where. Uh, you know, uh, where uh, there's not much regulation of behavior analysts in Canada. Um, and I think one province just started regulating in Ontario just like a, a month ago or something. Um, and we've been we've been trying for like 12 years to join the school, the the, the College of Psychologists. Um, but but they they you know I don't know that they see us as as I don't know why I'm, I'm speculating. I don't know why they haven't sort of brought us in. But you know you you'd think if they thought we were psychologists, we'd be in like Flynn, but we're not. So yeah, there there seems to be that difference. For for sure. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Kind of getting more into kind of where you are now. You're, you're, you're involved a lot with, um, uh, so much that you're uh, the president of the national association for school psychology. Is that, that, is that mm -hmm. a recent uh, appointment or a recent? Uh, so, uh, I'm actually coming to the tail end of my term. We start, we do July 1st through June 30th. So okay. I'm in the last quarter of my presidential year. And it's just a one year term. It's a one-year term, but it's three years in total as part of the presidential trio. So I had a president-elect year. Uh, I have my year as president, and then and I'll then still be on president. the board as past I president. See. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Cool. And also, uh, notably, you're the second Black president. Um, yes. Uh, second person of color, period. Person <laughs> so of color, first, period. Yeah, so the first president was a Black, and that was 25 years ago, Dr. Deborah mm. Crockett. Um, mm. But yeah, there I am the second person of color to serve as president. Wow. Well, congratulations, but Thank also you. sad. Um, yeah, <laughs> very <laughs> uh, much at, so. At the same time. So um, what, what kind of... Uh, there really seems to be a lot of things that... Uh, you know, I think school psychology and, you know, and social work to, to another degree um, seems to be ahead of the game uh, relative to 
behavior analysis. I don't know about sort of other fields um, in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, um, working on issues of diversity and whatnot. Like it seems to be like diversity only became a thing for us, you know, after after the George Floyd murder, um, as it has for a lot of folks, I think. But for a whole field, that's kind of scary. I know we did have a we did have a multicultural what was it called? It was like a multicultural alliance or special interest group that formed, I think, in 2013 um, with uh, something like, I forgot my date, dates right. And I've had uh, Dr. Elizabeth Hughes-Fong on the podcast. Um, she kind of was one of the founders of that group. But still, that's only, you know, nine years ago or eight, ten years ago. Um, uh, whereas when, I, when, when, we're, when I'm looking for sort of, um, uh, you know, models of kind of how to do this when we're talking about it in my own workplace I was on our local chapter kind of association um you know school psychology and social work seem to have you know uh, you know a lot more ducks in a row on on this kind of stuff yeah and we're even when I think about school psychology even further behind than counseling and counseling psychology and mm. so coming into and uh, we've gone into my origin story and my upbringing and yeah. how I've always been aware of issues of race and social justice and diversity. And that's discussed more in counseling programs. That right. Counseling has been discussing diversity as well as social justice mm. for many, many, many years now. Mm. And within school psychology, there were some conversations around diversity, but social justice, um, the first major school psychology journal that really published anything about social justice, it was a special issue in 2008. That was mm. only 15 years ago. Mm. So it's still it's still a fairly new concept to mm. a lot of school psychologists. Um, but coming from counseling, where there was more conversation around it, and, and then entering school psychology, where there was virtually none at the time where I started, mm. mm -hmm. that's one of the things that got me going into doing some of this research more, because I knew that it was possible. I knew that it was needed. I had these models from counseling to look mm. at. And when you think about the work that school psychologists do, the demographics of the profession, school psychology is close to 90% white. It's a very, very white profession and ha always mm. has been. And the growth with regards to racial and ethnic diversity has been glacial at best. And mm -hmm. then you contrast that to the demographics, the racial, ethnic, and linguistic demographics of the school age population in the United States. It was a gross, it is a gross mismatch. And mm -hmm. so for the life of me could not understand how I don't have a, a multicultural course in my program or why there's so little discussion around multicultural and diversity issues in school psychology research. And that spurred um, some of my initial involvement because mm. I came into my program interested in test bias, um, but I knew about the concept of multicultural competence from my work in counseling. And I would think about that a lot as mm -hmm. I was aware of the, the mismatch between school psychologists and the demographics of the kids that they serve. And that a lot of school psychology programs, mine included, don't have any type of diversity course. And I'm like, well, right. this makes no type of sense. Who make who's making these decisions? <laughs> and I found out, oh, well, this is determined by the accreditation standards that are set for by the American Psychological Association and the National Association of School Psychologists. Mm. So that was my initial entry point in learning more about these professional associations and how to yes. get a seat at the table. It was around the type of training that we're getting 
And are school psychologists being adequately trained to meet the needs of an increasingly more diverse school age population? And yeah. so that's been the heart of the core of, of my work. And even when I think about other projects and things that I've been involved in, ultimately, that's still at the root. Mm. Are we preparing school psychologists to meet the needs of the kids and youth and communities that we're serving? And what is it that we need to do differently, whether it's how our programs are structured, the models of training that are used? What are we actually teaching when we're talking about diversity and social justice? How are we doing it? What should we be teaching? Mm. Um, and then opportunities to practice all of those, what it looks like in action, all of those things are components of have been shaped or in some way addressed in my research. Yeah, yeah, I get it, and uh, and I, I'm I'm with you on sort of you know you, you got to go to the very top to kind of affect some of these systems, and uh, uh, and and the piece around you know if if we can train our students on this stuff early on, you know, then they're it gonna, makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. I mean, yes. it, you can take all the continuing education you want, but you know. You you really should shouldn't shouldn't know, should know some of this stuff before you get your license or whatever it is. In, in, in and as field. soon as you get because you, and you need to learn it early because you're going to be doing practica and field placements as part of your training. Mm -hmm. And so you know as you were talking about that behavior analysis has been slower to embrace it, and I mentioned before the school psychology has as well. I think we also need to consider some of the characteristics of the discipline itself. Um, mm. as, particularly around the professional thinking that's associated with each discipline. Mm. So I noted that counseling has been much further ahead in yeah. these discussions as compared to school psychology. Counseling as a discipline focuses on that self-reflection piece, focusing mm. on understanding self, understanding others, and how these relationships impact each other. When we think about issues of transference and counter-transference, something that counselors are trained on. And so this broader, their reflection is part of what they do, as mm -hmm. well as understanding the human condition. Um, that doesn't erase that biases may occur when we mm -hmm. think about aspects of the human condition. But as a discipline, they are taught to be more reflective, really thinking about these relational aspects and where mm -hmm. individuals are within their broader context. And so when the conversations were happening around the importance of diversity and looking at that, it goes to better understanding the human condition, but the social mm -hmm. justice aspect of it is that these identities that we hold, it's not, it doesn't just affect what holidays we celebrate or what food we eat or what language we speak. It also mm. impacts our access to power and opportunity. And so that's the social justice lens. And so that's kind of the logical road that counseling took on an extension of the work that they're doing, understanding the human, Condition means that you have to understand aspects of diversity and then looking at these identities and diversity within um, within a within the broader hierarchy or systems of power and privilege, because these identities are isolated. They're embedded within these systems of power and privilege. School psychology, in contrast, the nature of our work, uh, we don't do much counseling. Our work and mm. how we have gotten our boom in, in the U.S., and I'm sure the same in Canada, has been around compulsory education. That was a huge entry point for school psychology to grow in the US because all these kids now are going to school. And if everybody has to go, we're seeing the 
variation of the human condition in mm. terms of intelligence and ability. Yes. So what is it that we do with these other kids and how do we sort them? And that's where school psychology came in to do these assessments so kids can be sorted. It wasn't mm. doing this deep dive or reflective piece, but this is what's your score. Does this mean, are you educable or not? And yes. doing that splitting with, with relatively little nuance. And so mm -hmm. it wasn't reflecting on, well, what are the identities? What were the access to opportunities? It was all these kids need to be sorted. We need to figure out what to do with them. That's mm. it. And that's something that has persisted. And so kids are incredibly complex. And our and how we've been trained as school psychologists, because um, I talked about compulsory education, then even more so when we have the... Um, the adoption of IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So now we're looking to fit kids within these defined disability categories. Yes, yes. And so how do we make these determinations of it? It's putting together somewhat arbitrary rules. Yep. And this is where bias occurs because what is considered to be disabling, what is considered to be normative, so on and so forth. But again, not much reflection is here's this kid, here's the information we have about them, where do they go? And so to take a lot of complexity, reduce it to its simplest terms for the purpose of doing something mm. or categorizing. And so we struggle as a profession in understanding or adopting social justice because social justice is not black and white. There is no to-do list or task analysis that goes along with it, but it it's all, it depends. And mm -hmm. even thinking about identity, your identity may be salient, very salient to you in one setting, but not as salient in another. Yes. Your, the identities you hold may grant you privilege in one setting, but you go someplace else, you're subject to marginalization. And so as a result, social justice is messy and school psychologists do not handle messy <laughs> well. Um, tell us what to do. Yeah. And well, what should we do? Is there a checklist for this? All of those pieces. And again, that's not how it works. And it requires us to be self-reflective and thinking about the role that we play to contributing to these systems. Mm. And so we are good as school psychologists. We're good about talking about what schools should be doing, what teachers should be doing. But uh, pot, meat, kettle. What is it that school psychologists need to be doing? We've dodged that question for quite some time. And mm. then by extension, I think about behavior analysis. Yeah. And I say this with, again, I had a lot of people in my cohort who yep. went on to get certified as BCBA, had a couple of courses in ABA as well. Um, but one of the things that kind of put me off on it was Behavior is only something, the idea that behavior is only something that is objective and that yes. there's behavior and non-behavior and what about thought? And I'm like, this is overly, it felt overly simplistic mm -hmm. and reductionistic to me. And I know that there are other schools and thoughts around AP, uh, of ABA that it is a spectrum when we think about the continuum of mm. the discipline itself, but at its core and why um, ABA will struggle even more than school psychology yeah. is that there is very much a focus on the observable. And so mm -hmm. you're looking at the behavior itself. What was the antecedent? Can we clearly define what this antecedent is? Can we see it? Can we quantify it? How are we describing it? And then the consequence, all of those pieces. But when we think about racism and oppression and everything like that, 
people focus on the interpersonal. And so if I did or said something to you, that's a racism, but it ignores how racism is embedded within our policies and practices, yes. as well as the subtle ways that it appears. And so if someone is saying you committed this microaggression, a behavior analyst will be like, well, describe it. Well, there's other behavior that's in a similar class that wouldn't be considered microaggressive. So thus and therefore, this was not a microaggression. So mm-hmm. shake it off. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so. no, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so many gems here. Um, um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly in, in behavior analysis, I think, you know, we tend to loop lump all of the, all the, all of that stuff into, into this category called mentalism. Uh, mentalism is our term for sort of avoiding talking about, you know, what we can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, and mental and, 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 and basically if we talk about those things, you know, I think it's starting to change now, but for a lot of years, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 you were, you were being mentalistic and you need to shove that stuff aside and just look at the observable. Um, and, you know, we're seeing this a lot sort of, I think the, the big push right now, I hope we start seeing it in terms of, you know, um, uh, in, in kind of the racism context, but we're seeing it a lot in the ableism context right now um, in that, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the sort of, there's a lot of pushback, uh, you know, uh, kind of anti-ABA pushback from uh, kind of folks from the, the neurodiversity community, um, uh, you know, and, 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 one of the big pieces about is 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 there's a lot of this unobservable stuff. I've had a, a few guests on, and I'm I'm getting a couple more on I, in, in next week that talking about there's so many sort of aspects of autism that you can't see, um, um, you know, and, and so you you see a verbal a person that can you know mouth words, you know, and, and you make a lot of assumptions about them. You see a person that can't mouth words, you make a lot of assumptions about them. I mean, it goes, goes back to your IQ conversation. I mean, all, all the folks that were sort of non-vocal, you know, have IQs that are in, in the negative, you know, because, you know, um, <laughs> they, they, answer the question. they can't yeah. answer the question and therefore they must, they must not be intelligent, you know, and, and they get super, super low scores. Um, uh, also, there's a there, I, I'm learning more about sort of, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, uh, and there's not a lot of research behind it, I think, because maybe no one wants to look at it or, or, or no one can see it, but there's things like, um, you know, coordination disorders. There's things like, there's there's bizarre kind of, not bizarre, but really bizarre for the individual sensory disorders. Um, there's um, um, there's something called, uh, someone was just talking about called uh, alexith- is al- alexith- Alexithymia? I got to look it up. Alexithymia. Um, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. You know, which which is a thing a lot of folks, there's motor coordination disorders. So some of the folks, you know, it, it's not that they can't learn the words, it's that they physically, the, the brain won't allow them to convert those to words. It's almost like when someone, you know, has a stroke or something and suddenly can't talk or whatever. It's a, it's a brain you know, body connection, but they can understand all the words in their head, but you can't see that. And we don't mm-hmm. take in any of that stuff into account. Um, and so, you know, and not every, obviously not every autistic individual, you know, deals with all these sorts of things, but a lot of them do in, in, in you know, sort of different levels. And uh, I think folks are just starting to recognize, but hardly, you know, that some of those things are in place. And that's why we have a lot of problems. I had a guest on recently, um, Dr. Nasaya Serencioni Ulisi, um, on it was like episode 67. And she was talking just about kind of what you were saying, all about reflection um, mm-hmm. and, and, and how it's really kind of missing in our field. And she's really kind of connecting compassion, humility, and reflection to kind of all the work we do. Um, and it was it was such a powerful conversation for me. I learned so much from her about that. But you know, there are, there's just so many aspects that we leave out 
Um, and and one term you said that really kind of stuck with me that I've been hearing a lot lately is this sorting. Um, and mm-hmm. I've been hearing a lot about this in, in, in kind of the school setting, and and, and and it's it's crystal clear what it means. That I wasn't really sure before, um, but you're right. I, I, all of our fields, all these fields, are so much about putting these people into these sections, and then we leave them there forever. Yes, you know, forever. Even even if maybe, you know, and 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 the contextual piece is huge too. So even if maybe you know, in in you know, when they were six years old, and you know, in the context of you know the kindergarten class, you know, with this group, that that category made sense. The category changed as soon as they went into grade one, but they never got moved. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, and so yeah. So so have you been have have you. Uh, is this kind of an area you've been working on is sort of trying to sort of, is, are you trying to sort of eliminate sorting? Or are you trying to change it? Well, like- it's, it's more so what I've been working on is thinking about how we train school psychologists mm-hmm. and the content within our programs. Um, their most school psychology programs would have espoused and my own included when I asked them, well, how come we don't mm-hmm. have a cultural course yeah. is that they integrate it throughout the curricula. And there could be varying degrees of how well they do that, but we do have some, there's research around the best ways to do this type of training. And so that's what some of my work has addressed. Like, how are we providing it? Because we're saying that people need to be, that school psychologists need to be doing X, Y, and Z. And just like how you highlighted that after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in 2020 and thinking about the context of COVID and how it bear light, um, shed light on so many inequities within our systems. It was a focus like you need to be able to do this and practice in this anti-racist and anti-oppressive way. But mm-hmm. we can't say that school psychologists or any professional um, should be doing these things without also looking at their preparation. And so mm-hmm. do I, I have done um, work in that area, but then also a lot of theoretical or not theoretical, but more conceptual pieces talking about what we've what we've been talking about that we have to do this reflection and understanding of how the history of our profession has impacted the work that we do today. Mm-hmm. So how I highlighted compulsory education led to the growth of school psychology in the United mm-hmm. States. What is it that we were doing? We were testing and we were sorting. That's how we made our bread and butter. And then even going into a little deeper dive, what were the measures that we were using? We were using um, like the Stanford Binet and these other assessment mm. measures, yeah. which were developed by folks who were known to practice and engage in race science, yep. eugen- you know, eugenics and Absolutely. proponents of that. And so when I talk about educable or not educable, it's also a broader extension of who is worthy in society because that's what people were trying to sort out. Mm. Who are the folks with the good genes that we need to mm. invest in? And so we have the instruments that we were using, the people and the mindset that they came into it and the purpose that they developed them for. And then we're in this context where we're rapidly growing. And I remember, um, are you familiar with response to intervention? It's a multi-tiered approach to service delivery. Essentially, Mm -hmm. it's using a public health model. For any of your listeners who may not understand, but it's essentially using a tiered public health model um, in education Mm -hmm. around academics or around behavior, where we look at tier one, what everybody gets, tier two, the kids who need more intensive supports, and then tier three, the most intensive, right? And so with the idea of response to intervention as a way to 
identify specific learning disability, which that could be a whole nother, that's a topic for another day, <laughs> the appropriateness of RTI to do that. Mm. But the but school psychologists were threatened because it's a way of delivering services to kids that does not require the use of an IQ test. And while in theory, people should be like, this is great. We're serving mm-hmm. all kids. Mm. This is a great model. People were scared because, well, what does it mean if we don't have our test kits? And mm. so it's also when we have these conversations about what needs to change, we also have to call out our level of investment in the status quo. And so it's looking at these, because within school psychology, and I think the same is true for ABA um, in a lot of areas, it's, well, what do we do that we ne- that we overlook the philosophical, we overlook the process elements, but like, tell us what to do when we focus on action, but action without understanding becomes misguided rather quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we focus on developing school psychologists and behavior analysts that are technicians, but don't understand the philosophical underpinnings of what they do and how it came to be, why they're doing it in the first place. And so I see that that's an important part of the conversation that we can't just talk about what school psychologists need to be doing without doing, we can't skip this deep dive and the reflection and going back to our history. So that's also something that I do and write about as well. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, that's something we've been talking a lot about on the podcast too, is around, you know, the, yeah, the, 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 all all of the isms of the world that, 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 you know, that sort of support kind of, kind of, kind of where we're at. I want to kind of move towards, um, because something you kind of said early on, you know, about sort of, you know, 90% of school psychologists are, you know, are essentially white. Um, um, and I, I believe I read the, a number that was like 4% were black. I think that's mm-hmm. was, was a recent number, which, yes. which, you know, interestingly enough, you know, in ABA, the current number there's the, and, and, and there's t-shirts now uh, is a uh, 3.93%. So <laughs> We are, we are, um, we are really close to you in, in, in sort of, in sort of. And sort we're of, both terrible. Yeah, we're both, it's both, both awful. terrible. Yeah, absolutely awful. <laughs> and so I want to talk a bit about um, kind of your work and, 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 and the work that's being done, you know, to, to, uh, you know, kind of, kind of work on this issue internally, like it, like, like sort of, you know, the in-house cleaning as it were, uh, you know, I, I think because obviously, you know, a lot of the a lot of the problems you're talking about, a lot of systemic problems, um, you know, aren't aren't probably being seen by you know the ninety percent. You know, uh, either you know, I mean, they're right. just probably starting to, uh, but but well, more, you know. The second secret word is signal. You know, there's always been this degree of awareness of the racial homogeneity of school psychology yeah. because as I. As a school psych nerd, and I wear that title proudly, call myself that, reading about some of the older research on the profession, and this is a conversation that school psychology and psychology as a whole really has been having um, since the Boulder Conference. The Boulder Conference was a major training conference for psychology where the scientist practitioner model was developed Mm -hmm. and looking at how psychologists are trained to really meet the mental health needs and demands after World War II. Mm. And so as part of that, there was an awareness or a recognition about diversity and some of the issues brewing related to the civil rights movement that on an organizational level, it's it's been touched on, not always well, <laughs> let me be clear, but it's been touched on in some way, shape or form. So thinking about 
um, the American Psychological Association, for instance, in um, you know they had psychologists involved in share highlighting their research for the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which led to um, segregation being outlawed in mm. in the U.S. That research and and being and trying to be more responsive to the needs of people of color. And one of the biggest outcries was that we need more psychologists who look like us. And so mm. there was these early investments in attempts to diversify the profession, like in the 60s and 70s in particular, mm. within school psychology. Um, one a position statement we had about recruitment and increasing the racial and ethnic ethnic and linguistic diversity of the profession, that first statement came out in the mid 80s. Um, so it's something that has been a conversation piece, as I highlighted for a long time, but we haven't seen that growth. And mm. so what, and again, without looking at process and taking that thoughtful, deep dive, we're like, oh, well, we need more people of color in the field. So we need to focus on this recruitment and bringing them in, bringing them in, bringing them in, mm. right? And Recruitment is important. And we, when we look at the school psychology data, right now, the, the percentage of graduate students of color has steadily increased mm. since the 80s mm. to, at this point, about a little over a third of all school psychology graduate students identify as members of racial and ethnic minoritized groups. Mm. But as I mm. said before, about 12% of school psychologists identify as members of racial and ethnic minoritized groups. And mm. this has been, a, and I see your face. So the math is not mathing. Nope. Where is the disconnect? And because we have not been focused on retention. And so it's just bringing them in. We bring them in, but we yes. also have to care about what type of environment are we bringing them into? Because quite frankly, yes. we are bringing them into environments where they are going to experience microaggressions, discrimination, yes. where they're going to be reading research that talks about their groups in a deficit type of way, about yes. how they're remedial and all these gaps and everything like that, or not being exposed to people who look like them in the profession, or that the areas that they want to study, if they mm -hmm. want to explore diversity and social justice or culture, being told that these weren't legitimate areas of study. And so this is how people get pushed out. It's yep. not just about bringing them in. That's only half of it, but it's cleaning up your house. Is this an environment that they would want to be in and where they will, are willing to stay? Mm. And when you are bringing people in, are you bringing them in just for decoration? Or are you bringing them in because you value their insight? Because what happens in a lot of these, spe these spaces, we want to focus on diversity and you get more diversity there. But oh, we don't want your ideas, your opinions, yes. are calling things out. What would make them feel more comfortable or make them feel more included? They get hushed or they don't get the opportunity to make decisions or have their voice be heard. And so yes. what that tells them is that you weren't really bringing me in for me. You are bringing it in for you exactly. um, to make your numbers look better, but yes. you really don't care about me as a professional and the, what I could contribute or care if I stay or not. And yeah. so that's the issue. It's not just about recruitment. It's about retention. Mm -hmm. And and also thinking about the way we approach it, that they're not doing us any, that we're not doing them any favors by come to our program, come to school psychology, come to ABA, 
-hmm. quite frankly, the relevance and um, for our professions, for them to be sustainable, for for them to continue to be relevant, they need to diversify. Our professions need that influx of diversity. They need to better mirror the demographics of the populations that we serve, as well as, as the populations that we're in, because I highlighted about how in the U.S., about half of kids, a little over half of school-age kids identify as racial, ethnic, minoritized group. So right. when you look at 12% school sites versus over 50%, that's a stark difference. But yeah. we're well behind the demographics of just general U.S. population, that over a quarter of individuals within the U.S., kids and adults, are members of racial and ethnic minoritized groups. We are very discrepant from the rest of the pop from the US population itself. And mm. so that means that we need to figure out, we always say that it's somebody else, but the call is coming from inside the house. What is it that we are not doing? What is it that we are doing that is pushing some people away from the profession altogether? And so we have to change our mindset around diversification. That we're again, we're not doing anybody any favors or saying that it's lowering standards or we need to have flexible standards to meet their needs. No, we need to get rid of our preconceived notions about what it means to be a professional and again, value people for the knowledge that they're bringing into the ta- bringing to the table and that there's a place for it because our professions need to adapt and grow because if they do not, if they remain stagnant, mm. they're not going to be relevant. And yeah. that's the fact of the matter. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, the 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 you know, the idea of sort of just bringing in folks for the numbers. Um and and then what what I think what ends up happening is is, you know, these folks also then have to be the ones doing the work. You know, yes. so so we we bring in our twelve percent or whatever, uh, but then we make our twelve percent be the ones that have to change the culture of that entire yes institution. Fix it all. Fix, Fix it, it all. all. And then and then of course they burn out um, because you know in in part and 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 you know because, well it's not, not even so, always burnout it's right? resentful because people yes. recognize when they're being used and right. so this is not doing anything for me I'm not learning anything that will help me impact my community right. or how can I better serve my community we're not even talking about those problems or when we do we talk about them where we're blaming Mm. members of marginalized groups Mm. and so no it's so it's not even sometimes to the point of burnout but quickly communicating that no we're not i'm not doing this for you yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. i i do see that that there are there are groups there's a group now um and i'm curious how long it's been around the, the 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 black school site uh, sort of uh, the Black School Psych Network, yeah. yeah what, so I believe it's a little less than a year old. Um, oh, really? But it, yeah, it's a it's a relatively new organization. But the purpose of it was to create a space for Black school psychologists, and mm. I've seen a lot of development of these type of counter spaces, especially on social media. So Facebook groups for school psychs of, of color. Um, there's mm. another group that comes to mind, School Psych Sisters, which mm. is for women of color in school psychology. But mm. the creation of these counter spaces to provide connection, because yeah. if you are in an isolated area, I highlighted the, the stats about the demographics. 
if you are not in an urban area, perhaps you are likely to be the one of only that mm. school psychologists, we differ from counselors and that you may have multiple counselors at one school. And for school psychology is often the flip that a school psychologist may be serving multiple schools. And so just a, often a smaller professional community in the district itself. It's not like mm. you're a teacher where you have all these other educators, but you have this fairly small professional community. And mm. then you may potentially be the only um, as compared to and feeling rather isolated and not knowing that there's others of you out there. And so mm. that's what these spaces have provided and Black School Psych Network, BSPN, that's one of the newer ones. And so I guess is part of the purpose then, is, is this sort of one of many sort of, hopefully many, um, uh, uh, sort of one sort of maybe intervention, I guess we could say, for trying to sort of deal with the problem of of uh, of, of sort of a lack of support in, in those schools. Sure, absolutely. And so I see it. These type of counter spaces, and I also think it's the work of the professional associations that we have counter spaces and affinity groups within the national associations also, mm. but it provides the sense of connection um, mm. that it's a, it could be an isolating profession, period. Mm. Uh, for the reasons I stated before, you often don't have as many, you won't have as many professional colleagues in your district mm. as compared to the teaching staff within mm. your district. Mm. Um, so you are often left kind of figuring things out and the importance of being connected to a professional community to do so. Mm -hmm. But then you have the other element related to race or any other marginalized identity and knowing that there are more out there. And mm. so it's, it provides the support, but then also how is it that we are able to make change as well? And so the encouragement mm. and ideas around engaging in structural yeah. work um, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that things could get better. So not just it doesn't just serve a, this individual purpose, but it's getting these ideas and motivation of how they could make broader change where they are. Mm -hmm. And and do you, and might not do. Does the does the states have uh, something we're I'm, we're seeing just now, just starting to see um, in in ABA is uh, I've been doing kind of a lot of work with folks from the Black Behavior Analysis Association, uh, but um, one thing that their past president was telling me about was that I think um, uh, is that they're in in the process of developing the first ever. Uh, behavior analyst uh, graduate program in one of these uh, in 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 an HCBU, HBCU, um, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, HBCU. Sorry, thank mm -hmm. you. Uh, I, th I believe it's in in Florida, FAM, FAMU. Oh, okay, Florida A yeah. and M University. Yeah, okay. yeah, I believe that's where they're 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 in that, and, and you know, and because another piece is is just trying to get, you know, more 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 people of color interested in the field in the first place and having a place mm -hmm. where they can safely go and learn and and, yes. and, and kind of do those pr perspectives. Does school psych have programs like that as well? Yeah, so I am faculty at one of two HBCUs oh, okay. um, with a school psychology program. I'm faculty at Howard University. Right. Um, we have a specialist program and a doctoral program, and we're the only HBCU with a doctoral program in mm. school psychology. And then the other HBCU with a school psychology program is Bowie State University, which is in Maryland. So mm. 
the two, they're very close together geographically. Yeah. There used to be more. So there used to be a school psychology program oh. at FAMU, Florida A&M University. Mm. There used to be one at Tennessee State University also. Mm. Um, the idea of creating school psychology programs at historically Black colleges and universities, as well as other minority-serving institutions, is an important one. And it goes back to what I said about we have to change our perspective uh, around diversifying the profession mm. and not act like we're doing people a favor by letting them in. And along mm. those same lines, the importance of recognizing HBCUs in particular, they are biggest contributor to the workforce of color, um, the education workforce of color. Yeah. Um, when we think about producers of PhDs, producers of MDs, attorneys, we're looking at HBCUs. And mm. so they have had a historic and current purpose in preparing and cultivating Black intelligence. Mm. So as opposed to saying, okay, we want to take from HBCUs, which is a lot because recruitment there is one of the strategies that's highlighted. Mm. But interestingly enough, one of the strategies that's less frequently used, and I have to get into my thoughts as to why in a bit, but the idea that we should be taking talented people of color outside of the institutions that nurtured them and supported them to put them someplace else so they can enter the profession is ludicrous. That it's mm. and it's racist in its underpinnings as well, the assumption that well, we can't provide this education and build it at HBCUs, thinking wow. about how they cultivate, again, Black intelligence. And when we think about workforce in multiple areas, HBCUs have been that contributor. And so we need to, if we're serious about diversifying the profession, that we need to invest in those institutions as opposed to trying to pluck people out of mm. the places that nurtured them and to put them in a place that's going to be um, inhospitable. And yep. so I mentioned briefly about that one of the strategies noted is recruiting from HBCUs, but there was a study done by a school psychology scholar, Dr. Scott Graves, where he surveyed the fac the chairs of psychology departments at HBCUs to ask them their views about school psychology and what type of outreach they were getting from school psychology programs. And mm. most of them were not getting school psych programs weren't trying to recruit their students. And so mm. there's, it's part of these notions around bias as well, because I have seen that play out when I'm trying to place students for practicum and internship and people assuming that they're not as trained well because they came from an HBCU. And, mm. and so unraveling those notions that it's a lesser quality of training because it's Black. Mm. And so that we have research that, school psychology graduate students who came from HBCUs, they are encountering this bias when they go to their school mm. psychology programs where they have faculty assuming that they don't, that there's some gaps in their knowledge because wow. they didn't go to a predominantly white institution. And so that's why we need to look at structures, but we also need to confront and do that self-reflection. What is it that you are thinking and caring about with you because it shapes your decision-making? Mm. Who do you think should enter the program and who's not, who's qualified, who isn't? You mentioned mm. earlier, um, that was a point, uh, a point I wanted to come back to, about what topics are studied and yeah. the idea of mentalism. It's an understudied area within ABA because people have learned if I want to get published, and get tenure, then I need to write about something that they care about. And so mm -hmm. the gatekeep, it doesn't just go 
there's gatekeeping in which students are entering into our programming, but that gatekeeping extends to what is the research that we use? Um, yes. What is the science that is generated to guide our practices? People are making these decisions. Yeah, we've been talking about gatekeeping recently around sort of the journals themselves and, yes. kind, of, and kind of what they will publish and what they won't publish and what they're looking for uh, in publishing. And it's, I had no idea, uh, you know, how, my, how, how many, you know, folks that the authors mean the best, but they want to get their work out some way. And mm -hmm. the only way to do it is to publish in sort of these journals. I mean, there's, there is more encouragement to publish outside of outside of the field, but that can be, that can be harder to sort of do that piece. And it's, and it's not necessarily harder, but it goes to looking at our reward systems that if you are seen as publishing outside of your discipline and you're being mm. evaluated by faculty in your discipline, yeah. their bias is going to be like, oh, you couldn't get published in this as mm. opposed to, oh, well, mate, not thinking about the systemic issue that, oh, the journal is gatekeeping. That's why you write about this area. It's yeah. harder to publish in this area in traditional ABA journals. And so getting that, but they'll look at this as like, oh, well, they're just not a good scholar because look at the quality of journals that they're publishing in. Which is so ridiculous because, you know, we we keep talking about how the perceptions of our field are so negative. Um, but we only publish in our our own internal journals. Our flagship journal of Journal of Applied, Applied Behavior Analysis is only read by behavior analysts. No one else on the planet cares what's happening in that journal. And so there there has been encouragement by a few folks to be to publish in journals that are completely unrelated to the field, so we can start showing people that you know what we do can be helpful to you mm -hmm. outside of outside of this. And so to sort of say you know. Yeah, just to, to to have that argument that, you, that 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 you're making that I'm sure a lot of them do make, you know, is is so counterintuitive to what their goals are. Yeah. The third secret word is retention. That's awesome. So, as 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 you as you slowly move out of this role and and start advising your 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 incumbent. Um, um, What's what's kind of next on the horizon for 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 you? Sure. So, well, one will be going back to my job. Um, that as NAS president, you take a leave of absence from your job and NAS the salary replacement. Mm. So that'll be the first big transition back, going back to yeah. going back to Howard University next year. Mm. Go back to my research and continue mm. looking at the ways that we were trained, but then also to do. Um, there's one course I've been wanting to develop for quite a long time around social justice, diversity. We have a cultural diversity course, but I wanted to do a more social justice specific course. But now I yeah. think about it more so within the lens of a counter history of school psychology. Um, because mm -hmm. when you have a field that is predominantly white with researchers who are predominantly white, whose stories mm. are being captured? What are the events mm. that are considered to be historical? And there's yes. been many, many moments yes. within our profession, especially when it comes to how we understand social justice and diversity, that the work of my predecessors has been erased or is mm. at risk of being lost to history. I remember it and I made sure to elevate their work during my general session remarks. For example, the NAS Multicultural Affairs Committee was formed 35 years ago. That's wow. Social justice isn't new. That whether we may not have been using the term social justice, but as long as we've had marginalized individuals within our respective professions, social justice work has been happening. And mm. so to better capture that history 
and to use those lessons learned because we go yes. in these cycles and doing the same thing over and over again. But if we listened to the voices of marginalized folks within our profession, the pathway has been laid for us, but it's been ignored. And so hmm. with I, I was tenured prior to being in my faculty role, but now having coming back as faculty as being president, that certainly gives you a little bit of extra cachet also. Yeah. But to do this deeper dive into the bones of the profession, um, because we do have to look back to move forward. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Celeste, I am super honored and humbled that you came on to this thing, this podcast. I, I uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've learned a lot and I think, I hope, I hope, I hope others will, will, will get a lot of this. I'm sure they will. Um, and uh, I just, I'm, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. This has been such a wonderful conversation. This, our pre-podcast convo, lots of great nuggets and gems in here. Absolutely. Really cool. All right. Thanks. All right.